You are dismissed as your leaders are waiting for you at the doors. Amen. See you, kids. Have fun. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So great to be with you today. Uh, welcome here. And um, hey, newlyweds. Is this, your fir- this is your first time since the wedding, right? In church. Awesome. Fantastic. We are so delighted for you guys and know that God's going to richly bless your union together. We love you and uh, congratulations. Uh, Brennan, come over, man. Uh, Joanne, why don't you come up, uh, Joanne Sinclair. Um, Most of you probably know Brennan. Some of you will know Brennan and Joanne really well. Some of you won't know them quite as well, but this is Brennan and Joanne Sinclair. And Brennan has been a worship leader with us for, for quite a number of years uh, now, and I have the, the sad task of letting you know that this is their last Sunday with us. And see how much they love you? Yeah. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> and um, uh, Brennan and Joanne, uh, Joanne grew up in this church, right? You, you grew up from, from a baby in this church. And, and Brennan, uh, as a sort of early teen, you were invited to youth here, and Joanne, you invited him to a worship service here came to faith, got baptized here, and uh, has been a worship leader with us for a number of years. And you guys were in my young adults group when I first got here and was the young adults pastor. Yeah. So really good times. Um, So Brennan and Joanne moved to the east side of Chilliwack some years ago and have been faithfully uh, continuing to make Seven Oaks home, but have made what is absolutely the right decision for you guys to, to say, you know what, we need to incarnate ourselves into our local community uh, we want to be part of a church there where, you know, our kids play with those kids and go to school with those kids, and you want to really incarnate yourselves in that, that place, and we're 100% behind you. Uh, doesn't mean we're happy about it, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to miss you greatly, and um, I've benefited, Brennan, from your discipleship uh, as you've led me in worship many, many times, and uh, you have a gift, and I have no doubt the, the two of you and your wonderful children are going to be a great gift to your new church family. So I want to pray for you, and um, we want to sort of commit you to your new community, and, and, uh, uh, and may you be a blessing to them, and may you be nurtured there too, you and your kids. But before I pray, can we just hear it for these guys? Mm-hmm. You guys are deeply loved, so... I'm going to weave into to that prayer also a prayer for the Javis, uh, Seamless Link partners of ours. They've been on home assignment for about a year, and on August 1st, they're heading back to their mission field, so I'd like to pray for them too. So uh, let's pray together. Church family, if you feel it appropriate, maybe you just want to stretch out a hand of blessing to these guys. Father, I just want to thank you so much for, for Brennan and Joanne, for the people that they are, how deeply loved they are of the Father. May they know that and may that knowledge increase in them throughout the years, the knowledge of their, their sonship and daughtership uh, of the King. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless them. I want to pray that your peace would rest upon their household. I pray for their kids. And as they leave the care of this church community and enter into another, we want to bless them as they go. And we pray for that new church community that it would be a place of radical welcome and hospitality to them as a family. 
and it will be a place where they get nurtured and built up in their faith and a place in which they can also serve and speak into the lives of others and bless others as, as they have done here. So Lord, would you go before them, would you go behind them, above them, below them, around them, fill them anew. Um, we love them and we pray your blessing over them in the name of Jesus Christ. And for our friends, the Javis who are leaving uh, back to the mission field, we want to pray that you would also go before them and that you would prepare for them a wonderful season of ministry in the place that has their heart. And would you fill them and equip them and strengthen them in the commission that you've called them to? In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. And Brennan's going to come up and sing again at the end. So... Amen. All right, so we are in uh, the book of Colossians, and uh, we, so far up to this point, have been doing some sort of introductory things that the letter, you know, most of Paul's letters uh, typically do, and we've also been looking at some positive theology, and what I mean by positive theology is the theology, the theological statements and commitments that Paul makes, inspired by the Spirit, that are actually true about Jesus and about his church and so on over and against the negative theology that the Colossian people have been receiving from false teachers who have infiltrated the church and taught them things that are plainly false. So that's what I mean by positive theology. And so in the first passage that uh, Brian preached from, uh, there was a lot of that sort of introductory stuff that is typical. And then there was all that, you know, uh, I've heard about your faith in the world and the fruitfulness of, uh, of you as, as the people, and I rejoice in that and, and so on. And then, and then Mike Evanson preached the next week, and Mike had this wonderful passage with all these Christocentric affirmations of who Jesus is, and these wonderful theological pieces that really sort of set the tone for the letter. And then last week, I took us through a passage where Paul started to talk about his sufferings. He was in prison, and he was suffering, and he says a couple of really strange things. The first thing he said is, I, I rejoice that my sufferings are for you, for the Colossians. And we talked about that image of, of drawing enemy fire away from the church onto himself, that kind of picture. And then he says this really interesting thing about how he takes up in his body... The, the, the things that were lacking in Christ's afflictions, and it's a really odd phrase, but we talked about how that wasn't related to sacrificial, salvific suffering, but rather the day-to-day -day pressures and struggles and difficulties uh, of life. And so uh, we talked a little bit about that, and we talked about the beautiful union between the believer and Christ and how he, he suffers and we suffer and we share in uh, one of the sufferings and so on. Um, if you've missed those sermons and you, you're somebody that likes to sort of catch up, uh, you can go to our website and listen to those um, to sort of keep you on track for where uh, we are. So today, we are really now into the body of the letter, and what we're going to do for the rest of chapter two is I'm going to preach it in two parts, uh, part one today, obviously, and, and next Sunday on the long weekend, we'll look at part two. And so this first part has Paul saying, okay, having said all of this stuff, having said all of that... Now, as you live for Jesus, be careful to live in this way. And he gives a few practical, um, uh, practical things that we'll look at. It gets even more practical in chapter 3, which we'll get at sort of after the long weekend. Uh, in chapter 3, there's some really practical pieces. And today we're going to see he starts to touch on the false teaching. And we're going to sort of try to pull some of those things out of the, out of the text. 
So if you have your Bible with you, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read from 6 uh, to 15 today. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. That's the whole false teaching piece. Make sure you don't get taken in by that stuff. It will actually make you a captive, he says. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a little bit of a repeat from chapter 1. We'll come back to that. And you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead." When we baptize people, sometimes I talk about that, how baptism is this beautiful picture of the gospel, how when we place the baptizee under the water, it's dying to Christ. It's as though the person is, is, is going into the tomb with Jesus and then being resurrected up out of it. And, and that's why we applaud and we get so excited when people get baptized, because it's a beautiful picture of the inner reality that's happened in that person's life. Verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all your trespasses, erasing the record. We all had a record, you know that? We all had a record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. God's word to us today. Amen. I want to um, start out this morning by telling you about uh, my adventure with plum trees in my garden. That's a way of saying yard, by the way. I know when I say, I always forget that in a North American context, when you say garden, you think of like a little vegetable garden. When I say garden, I mean the whole yard, my my yard. Um, So about eight years ago, eight, maybe nine years ago, when we, soon after we moved into the house we now live in, I decided to plant a plum tree. And, and I think I might have found it on sale or something like that. I thought, oh, this, is, this would be kind of fun to have a plum tree in the garden. There was a spot available, and so I kind of dug a hole. I threw it in, threw some earth around it, and largely just left it alone. And the gardeners among you are saying, you fool. Um, but it was autumn, and there were, you know, rains. And so I thought, well, it's going to get water. I mean, plants need water. That's a good thing. And I largely left it alone. And then the next year, it, it grew a few leaves, but they didn't last very long. And the year after, it was, it was dead. Uh, it had a few crispy leaves, and then it just uh, died on me. Though I had failed categorically with that plum tree, I'd come around to the idea in my own head, and maybe it's partly stubbornness, that I really wanted plum trees in my garden now. I really wanted plum trees. So about three years ago, maybe four, I, I purchased a couple of plum trees, and um, this time I did it very differently. I carefully selected the part of my garden that I wanted them in that was going to get a little bit more consistent sunshine, and I dug way bigger holes. And, and we live in the sort of Claiborne area, which I mean, our soil is very clay-like, um, and, and so we dug a bit of a bigger, I dug a bit of a bigger hole, 
and I put some stones in the bottom because clay soil doesn't drain very well to help the drainage. And I filled the hole partly with brand new, really good quality soil. And then I listened to the advice of the person I bought the trees from in the nursery who said it'd be really good for you to use a root starter solution. So what you do if you don't know what that is, is you pour it over the root ball and then you pour it in the hole and you put it in. And the idea is that it helps the roots become really healthy and adapt quickly to the new soil and, and so on. It's got stuff in it, I don't know. Um, but uh, maybe it's just a marketing thing, but I, I did it and it worked. So. Uh, so anyway, so that's what I did. And it was a, a completely different experience. Uh, my trees grew, they got bigger and bigger, and coming up on the screen for you now, I'm sorry, I'm so excited about this, <laughs> is look at those plums. Isn't that cool? Yes. You know what, I'm so excited about it, and I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I've started now, so I'm going to continue. And um, I'm such a geek that sometimes when I'm in the garden, I just look around the side of my garden just to look at them. Like, I'm so proud of them. It's so cool. And by the way, we are, the ones on the left, the Santa Rosa plums, we've, we've tasted, and they're really good. The other ones are not quite ready. But anyway, why am I telling you all of this? My point is this. Tending to a tree properly, or tending to a garden properly, or tending to a relationship properly in a healthy way, or tending to your educational journey and career makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It makes all the difference in the world. Don't throw a plum tree in a hole, largely ignore it, and expect it to be fruitful. Don't come to Christ and largely ignore him and ignore your soul and hope that you will live a fruitful and dynamic life. You won't. You have to tend to the garden of your soul. You have to tend to your relationship with Jesus. Remember this book. Um, we've taken a phrase out of it from the passage I preached last week, and we've made that the title of the sermon series, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The truth is that if you're a believer and you've committed your way to Jesus, Jesus actually, even if it doesn't feel like it all the time, actually dwells within you. He's in you and you are in him. It is this mystical union of you and Christ Therefore, if he dwells within you by the Spirit, don't ignore him. What a tragedy that would be. We also need to be careful we don't, on the flip side of the coin, create a workspace righteousness where we feel we have to go and do all of these religious activities in order to make us you know, pleasing to God. That's not it either. Now, many of those religious activities might actually help you tend to the garden of your soul and are useful. So it's really a fine line we have to be careful with. But the point is this, be established and rooted and built up in him, not in some doctrinal statement, not in some theological principles that you know, not in some creedal statement, as good as all those things may be. But actually, there's nothing wrong with them, but actually be rooted in him. Christianity is Christ. It's all about him. And, and if you've been at the church long enough, maybe you're newer to the church and you haven't heard me talk about our vision very much, but our vision is really, really simple, purposefully simple because it's memorable. Uh, when I first came here, we had those long, big, you know, leftover from the 90s, these massive, big vision statements and statements of mission and values and big, long. I'm like, nobody remembers that. The pastors can't even remember that. So we made it really simple to know Jesus and make him known. Now, we have statements of value and things like that that sort of unpack it, but it's easy to remember, know Jesus and make him known. What it is not is know about Jesus. 
and make him known. It's not about knowing about Jesus. Anyone can know about Jesus. Demons know about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. Now, when you get to know him, you will learn things about him. Of course you will. But that's not the point. It's not an educational pursuit. It's a relational reality. So that's how Paul starts. He says, be rooted and established and built up in him. And then he goes on and he says, but be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit and according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. Don't listen to the false teachers. And he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And you have come to the fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. We're now beginning to come face to face with some of the false teaching that Paul is writing to refute. And it seems like there's both a Jewish element to it and a pagan element to it. And the pagan element is what I would call proto-Gnostic. It isn't Gnostic. Sometimes we read that back into the text. Gnosticism wasn't full-blown until the second century, but it was proto-Gnostic. What that means is those things that were sort of the thoughts that led one day to full-blown Gnosticism. It's that kind of idea. But we're going to deal with the Jewish part first. One of the commentators I read this week actually really helped me with this, and I've just changed it to make it a little bit more um, applicable to us. So uh, suppose that my last name was spelt with an E on the end, right? Suppose it was F-O-X-E, right? And suppose that the Apostle Paul was alive today and he was writing to you, the Seven Oaks Church and maybe some other churches in Abbotsford, to warn you about my false teaching, right? So let's say he was, he was writing to you and let's say he decided to use a memorable pun to try to get his point over. So he might say something like, don't let Fox outfox you into believing something that isn't true, using a pun on my name. Don't let fox with an E outfox you, just with an X, into believing that something, uh, something that isn't true. The outfox you, in other words, don't let him trick you, was the way he was using it. It was a pun based on my last name. It seems like Paul is doing something like that here in this passage. And, and it's not that easy to pick up unless you sort of dig in a little bit. Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And the Greek word he uses for captive is syllagogon, which is really similar to synagogue. And it's almost like it's a pun on synagogue. Just like fox, F-O-X, is very, very close to fox with an E. So synagogue is very close to that Greek word syllagogon. And he's using it as a pun to warn them to stay away from the synagogue. Why would he do that? Well, he'd do that because, quite frankly, there was all the temptation in the world to go back to the synagogue. Particularly after the leaders had left and gone on to plant churches in other cities, the young fledging church could be very tempted to go back to the synagogue. Why? Well, because it was really vulnerable to be the people of God who were part of the way during those times. You were often persecuted. You were left out. The synagogue was the place of community and the place where where family and friends were. They would often shun you if you came to faith in Jesus. It often had economic benefits and on and on. It would be easy for them to say, you know what? We can still do this Jesus thing, but let's be part of the synagogue because like that's, it's too hard not to be. So there was all these kind of temptations to go back to the synagogue. 
And um, if you read the book of Galatians, you'll know that there was some, a group of people called the Judaizers who had come into the Galatian churches and were teaching them, by the way, this Jesus stuff is cool, but you know you still need to keep the Jewish law, right? And you know your men need to be circumcised, right? You st- that's all still binding on you. And Paul says, no, 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 it isn't. We're under a new covenant now, the covenant in Jesus' blood. All that old covenant stuff has passed is what he says. So it is not inconceivable to imagine that the teachers in the Galatian churches, which is not very far from the Lycus Valley, could have easily then shown up in the Colossian church, or at least some people like them who were teaching, you really should still be part of the synagogue, and you should be doing this and this and this and this. Excuse me. Verse 11 then. So that's our first tip-off, that it's a Jewish false teaching. Um, You have to understand that when we try to piece together false teaching, if it doesn't say it directly, it's a little bit like being in a room where someone's on the phone and you can only hear their side of the argument. You, you can't hear what the other person is saying. You're trying to piece together the conversation and what they're saying. It's similar here. We only have Colossians. We don't really know exactly. We don't have a text that says what the false teachers were teaching. So we pick it up as best we can and try to understand So in verse 11, to support this idea of Jewish false teaching, he says, in him, you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. That is definitely uh, suggestive of a Jewish side of the false teaching. I think Paul would probably say circumcision doesn't really actually matter, whatever, Um, if you want to, fine, but if you want to because you feel you have to, because you feel you need to fulfill the law, because you actually think it's pleasing God and keep it in covenant, then don't, because it's not that. It's none of that. There has now been a circumcision of the heart. We've been spiritually circumcised. The old covenant has passed away. The new covenant is now in the blood of Jesus, and it's about a fundamental reorientation of the inner world of human beings. It's a putting off and a putting on. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So on one hand then, Paul is coming against some Jewish elements of false teaching. He's saying, don't be lured back into the synagogue. Don't be taken captive by the synagogue and the Jewish teaching. The other part though is, is, is more pagan, uh, uh, a more pagan element of the false teaching. He says in verse nine, For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He said something similar in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Here, he says it really similarly, except he adds a word. He says bodily. And I'm going to argue that I think he uses that word very purposefully. He chooses that word because he's trying to refute something. What he's refuting is the proto-Gnostic, Greek, dualistic, Platonic, as in of Plato, elements of belief that the world had at the time that denied and pushed down anything that was related to the body. This dualism was a fundamental opposition of body and spirit. Um, In its easiest form, generally speaking, The body and anything earthy and anything you could touch and anything you could experience was generally seen as bad, and anything that was ethereal and spiritual and at the soul level was good. That was Greek dualistic thinking. 
And so Plato said, you know, the, the aim of life, the hope of life is that one day our, our true selves, our true soul, our true spirit will one day be liberated from this fleshly prison that keeps us imprisoned, this terrible body. And so that thinking led you to live in two opposite ways. You could choose which way you want. Many people live probably between that, but there were two different ways you could live. You could either live as an ascetic, somebody who pushed down the body and denied the body and denied the passions and the impulses that we have as a way to try to control the body because the body is bad and what really matters is attending to the spirit. Or you could live the opposite way and be a libertine and say, you know what, I'm going to eat and drink and engage in whatever kind of sexual fantasy I want with whoever I want because at the end of the day, I might as well have fun because my body doesn't matter. What I do with my body really doesn't matter. It only matters what I do with my soul. Two opposite ways to live, but both coming from the same fundamental worldview. And poor thinking about the body has led to all kinds of deeply problematic ways to live throughout human history. And in fact, has profoundly impacted the Western church. If we had time, we could talk about that, even up to today. As it's infiltrated the way we think. There's a lot of Greek thought, um, some of it helpful, a lot of it not helpful uh, at all. But we don't have time for that today. Um, so that is dualistic, uh, ancient Greek way of thinking about the world. It's what Plato and others taught. And Paul makes it really plain that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and it dwelt bodily, in his body. The body matters. The body actually matters. Yes, it's broken, and yes, it gets injured, and yes, it gets sick, and it breaks down, and it gets old, and one day it dies. Absolutely. But when God created human beings with bodies, he said, it is very good. The body is good. Greek thinking taught that it was bad. Hebraic thinking, biblical thinking, says the body is good. Now, it's prone to sin. Of course it is, but it's good. It is fundamentally good. The body matters. And I believe some of us in the room need to hear that affirmation that our bodies are good and they're gifts to us. When we get to chapter 3, Paul's going to talk more plainly about the misuse of the body. And he's going to talk about uh, some of the ways that they need to give up misusing the body and things like that. Absolutely. But today, as we try to piece this together, what this false teaching was, it seems like there's a Jewish element and there was a, um, a, a pagan element. And there's one other thing mentioned here that I just want to touch on really briefly, and that is this phrase, the elemental spirits of the universe. It's a weird phrase, and it's debated about what it means. Um, one of the ways to understand it is that it's, it's talking about the basic principles that sort of make up the universe. Uh, and therefore, when you connect it then, which can be very neutral... But when you connect it to where he says human tradition and empty deceit and philosophy and so on, it's another way of talking about those things that we lean on that are actually separate from Christ, I think is what Paul is quite possibly saying. And that we need to be careful we don't lean on those things. We actually need to lean fully on Jesus in our understanding. But it also can move over into a discussion of otherworldly spiritual type things. In other words, the realm of angels and demons and so on. And we're going to talk more about that next Sunday because actually Paul's going to come against something that was happening in Colossae where it seemed like some were actually worshiping angels. And he's going to talk about that briefly next time. Where we need to go now 
is to take just a quick look at the end of the passage that says this. And when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him and he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the powers and the authorities, making a public example of them triumphing over them in it. The law actually stood against people. It stood against the Jewish people. The law stood against Jewish people over and against them. It was like a record that each one of us had. And it stood against us. Because not one of us has ever been able to live up to it and obey it perfectly. So all humans had this kind of law that stood against us. But Jesus, in taking on sin himself, nailed that to the cross And actually, with with all the legal demands, he erased your record. You got your record erased. Isn't that good? It still stands against unbelievers. The only way it gets erased is when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And then Paul says, as well as nailing the record of your sin against us and setting it aside for us, he also disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. What on earth does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, without print media and electronic media, they had to have other ways of spreading news and information and so on. And so sometimes, you know, your your nation could be fighting a war somewhere and you wouldn't even know about it. You wouldn't even know until months later whether your nation won or not because there was no access to news unless somebody happened to pass through your little village to tell you. And so one of the ways that they would do that after, uh, for victorious armies is if they'd been away for months or years is they would march back into the capital city to demonstrate to the people how victorious they were. And so what they would do is they'd come in, they'd march with military standards, which were kind of like flags. Um, they would march in with you know, victorious soldiers and the general and maybe the king sort of leading them in. And then they'd have a bunch of like, carts with the booty of war, the spoils of war that they'd taken from whoever they'd defeated. And then often they'd have this long bedraggled line of prisoners of war. And if possible, they'd have the king at the very end. And as a culmination of all of that, they would celebrate by executing the king publicly as a way of sending a pretty stark message. So when the Romans executed Jesus of Nazareth with a sign above his head that said what? king of the Jews. That's exactly what they thought they were doing. Now, they didn't feel the need to take Jesus back to Rome because he wasn't leading an army. This was sort of a strange kind of a king, but we'll kill him anyway because, you know, it's another symbolic victory of the might of Rome, and these Jews seem to want him dead anyway. And so uh, they did, and so they killed him. So to first century eyes, it was another show of military strength The rulers and the authorities, the the generals of the army and Caesar himself, had stripped Jesus. They stripped him, and they made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him on the cross. Now read Colossians again. According to Paul, inspired by the Spirit, God was stripping them of their armor. God was actually going to make a public spectacle of them. God, uh, the cross looked to the naked eye like Jesus' defeat, but it was actually the victory of God. 
The paradox of the gospel, the paradox of the cross, God's weakness overcoming human strength, God's folly overcoming human wisdom. What we are seeing, friends, in this passage is behind the scenes of the passion. Because out front was human power and demonic victory. Out front was Satan laughing and demons screeching. Out front was human sin and dark betrayal. But behind the scenes of the passion was the biggest turnaround in all of history. The cross may have looked like captivity and death, but it actually led to freedom and grace. God's love overpowering all the hatred of humanity. And so it was them who were going to be stripped of their power and led as captives and publicly put to death. And that will happen in all of its finality at the consummation of all things when Satan and his demonic horde are thrown into the lake of fire at the end. The victory of God. There's a lot of people in our world who don't believe in anything spiritual. They don't believe in a spiritual realm of any kind, particularly in the West. And they think that human observation and human intellect and human technological advancement can answer many of the puzzles that, face, that we face and will, will hopefully solve many of the problems. And of course, you know, they have solved a lot of problems, which is great, but there's still a lot. Uh, I think there's a less and less people like that, actually, in the West. I think that that general stance is becoming weaker, and I think people are, are, are getting confused about reality if they stop and think about it long enough. Because more and more people see the major challenges and the major mess of the world as the optimism of the early enlightenment that finally humans are going to be able to evolve out of this kind of medieval belief and we're going to finally you know, evolve out of wars and petty things like that because we're going to, we've finally become mature as human beings and as a race. We're going to be able to solve all of our problems and live in harmony well. Sure, right? As people see that, I think there is disillusionment. And I think if, if some people are honest, they would say, I don't think we're going to be able to fix many problems before some kind of end-time end scenario, apocalyptic end to this planet. I don't think we're going to be able to colonize Mars before this one burns up, because it seems to be burning up every year more and more. So I think there's less people like that. Um, I think there are a lot of people on the planet who fear things like elemental spirits, however, I think there are people that are concerned about things like that. I think there's a burgeoning interest in self-help and astrology and tarot cards and, and reading of crystals and all of that stuff. Go into any bookshop, look on the bookshelves, and you will see all of that kind of stuff. The so-called, you know, throwing off religion hasn't really worked. It hasn't. We've become more religious and spiritual in many ways. But even back to that first group, that have no room for anything spiritual. Many of them still fear, I think, the, the, the seeming randomness of evil, random violence, random storms, random accidents. There is fear in our world. Friends, in Christ, we don't simply have forgiveness of sins and our slate wiped clean, as if that wasn't wonderful enough. But we've also been delivered from every controlling power that would seek to get possession of our lives, that would seek to have sway over our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't face hardships. It doesn't mean we don't face difficulties and challenge and pain and all of that. But what it means is that we are God's possessions, his children, 
and we can stand firm against all evil forces and powers, and when things get a bit too much for us, if we open the door to things that are unclean, as it were, we can actually seek the help of the church in terms of helping us find deliverance and implementing what is our rightful, uh, what is right to us as the people of God. We cannot be possessed because we are owned by God, but we can give room to unclean forces, and we can also implement the rightful freedom as God's people together. It's why we need each other. So let me encourage you to take up your spiritual armor and stand against evil and temptation and oppression and fear. God's people shouldn't be in fear. Perfect lovers cast that out. If you find yourself in fear, there's something a bit wonky going on and you need to go back to Jesus. To not succumb to fatalistic thinking, to understand you have victory in Jesus and you have a right to walk in that victory. And finally, um, as we close here, let me return to how I started the sermon with a picture of the plum trees. How well are you planted in your faith? How well are you rooted and established? How well are you watering and fertilizing your walk with Jesus? Are you postured well enough towards the sun? Or are you trapped in shade? Are you giving yourself the right nutrients? The only way we can actually walk in truth victory and implement victory and be the people of God as we're called to be, is at, and the only way we can stand against temptation and oppression is to understand that we are properly, when we are properly rooted and built up in Christ. And in John chapter 15, it talks about the vine being vitally connected to the vine. So are you properly tending to the garden of your soul and your walk with Jesus? And if you're honest in a moment, you say, I could be doing far better. Here we are in midsummer, where most of us probably have a little bit more time than some other busier times of the year, to actually lean into that, to create some space, to start some new spiritual habits and to dive into making sure we're rooted and established and living victoriously for Jesus. And if you don't really know how to do that, I'd love to have a conversation with you and give you some ideas. Amen. Amen. Brennan and team.